This is a recording of a Bible study given at the chapel of the Opened Book under the covering title of the Pre-Roma and is number six of the series. It is our custom to read a portion of scripture together at this meeting. So those of you who are listening to this recording, if you care to join with us, switch off for a moment or two and read together 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13. The first part of this study may require a little concentration, but I think it will be worth it, and so I'm going to ask you to turn with me to the Epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 1 and chapter 2, and then we're going back to the Psalms. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10, 11 and 12, quote, Psalm 45. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundations of the earth, and so on. Psalm 45. Now, chapter 2 of Hebrews quotes Psalm 8, verse 6. One in a certain place testified, saying, What is man? Now, those two uh, psalms quoted by the apostle, he lifts, lifts them out in chapter 1, The Lord who created heaven and earth. Chapter 2, what is man without mindful of him? <clears throat> I've got one thing in common, and for that I'm going to ask you to turn now to the Psalms themselves. Psalm 45, where these words are quoted. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. So on. Oh, I made a misquotation, didn't I? It was the, the section that was a little bit earlier than the part I quoted. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. That's Psalm 45, quoted in Hebrews chapter 1. Now, at the beginning of Psalm 46, you'll see the words, a song upon Alamos. Now, it would be too big a task to go into the question of psalm titles. But some of you may know that they've been cut in the wrong place. And many a, 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 a tail piece or many uh, an introduction to a psalm is the tail piece of the one that went before. Now you'll have to take that for granted for the time being. You'll find notes on it in the Companion Bible and in our bookshelf here we have psalm titles by Dr. Thurtle where you can go through all the ins and outs of the story. So for the moment, I want you to consider the possibility, at least, that the words, a song upon Alamos, belongs to the end of Psalm 45. Now, will you turn to Psalm 8? <coughs> and if you'll look at Psalm 9, it says, to the chief musician upon Muth Laban. Now, <coughs> possibly, you might look at those and never realise there was the same word. Because, you see, what the translators have done is this. They've left the two letters, A-L, untranslated. In the one case, they called it Alamos. But they've translated the letters A-L, in the Hebrew language meaning the word upon, and so this reads, <coughs> upon Muslaban. But, strictly speaking, it's Alamos Laban. Now, those two coming together like that, should quicken our interest. We should say, what does it mean? Well, that's the rub, friend. There's been so many ways in which it's been interpreted, because being a sort of title, it's not grammatical. 
You could have a title that's got not enough parts of speech in it to make a real sentence, and yet, if you were speaking the language, you'd know what it meant. I was only listening to the wireless today, and uh, a lady who was speaking about her relatives in Holland, uh, she was engaged to a young man who'd gone out to Australia, and he was getting on so well that he sent a cable from Australia to her, said, will you come out and marry me? And she said, her reply back, she said, yeah. So in back came a cable, and it says, wacko! Well, she was very upset, because that sounded whack. A blow in the English dictionary, perhaps he said it all off. And they were all consoling with her, till at last they got somebody who was able to say, that means absolutely okay, you see. Well, now you see, wacko, it's got neither noun nor verb or anything, but it meant a tremendous lot in a cable. Well, these titles, you see. So, they said, well, it means upon Muth Lab and whatever that is. But the moment I saw that these two psalms had got this same title over the top, it started me off on another quest. And I've often found this, that if we'd only give a bit more credit to those early men who translated the Bible that they understood into, that, into the Greek language and not be so independent of the Septuagint, we might have known it all along. Do you know what it says in the Septuagint against Psalm 8? It says, the secrets of the sun. And this word, alamos, means a secret thing. And ben means a sun. How they get the la ben in, I don't know. But there it is. It's the secrets of the sun. Now, when the Apostle was writing the Ephesians, he said, if you would understand my knowledge of the mystery of Christ, consider what I've already said. And what I've already said in the same epistle, all things under his feet, not merely sheep and oxen, but principalities and powers. You find a match for that anywhere with a knowledge of the glorious exaltation of the Son of God. So, I've just done that to stimulate your interest. If you want to go further in it, you can. There's an article in one of the recent volumes of the Brian Expositor that go into it a bit more in detail. But for the moment, we're just going to say, you see, how that says, if you want to understand the place that Adam occupies in the scheme of things, instead of trying your best to find it out, why not go to that psalm, which tells you, which puts the question, what is man that thou art mindful of him? It may give you a hint as to the whole purpose that God had when he made man. Now it's worth that little preamble, is it, to make you say to yourself, oh, let's come to Psalm 8 again and see, shall we? Because you remember in Hebrews, it slides from Adam to Christ. We see not yet all things under his feet, but we see Jesus crowned with glory and honour that he might taste death for every man. We see not yet that we see him. Adam was only a picture of him that was coming. So, Psalm 8 for a moment. Well now, you notice how it starts. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who hast set thy glory above the heaven. Now that includes all we've got on this chart, doesn't it? The earth and the heavens. He's going to talk about man and his place in the scheme of things. And here he introduces it straight away with the Lord. 
who has set his glory above the heavens, and yet his name is excellent in all the earth. They are united together and linked. We find that when he's gone through the psalm, he says a part of it again at the verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Now there's a double reference there. Lord, Lord. Would you look at Psalm 110, which again is a prophetic psalm concerning Christ. Psalm 110. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. That's quoted, you see, in the epistle to the Hebrews. The Lord said unto my Lord. So there's this sort of consultation difficult to express in human language without exceeding truth. But uh, here was the Lord being addressed. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. I repeat it at the end as a refrain. Now we're going to to read about some way in which the, um, the Lord is going to be glorified both in earth and heaven. Now, if we didn't know our God, and if we had the book shut, we could speak about his wondrous works, couldn't we? We could say uh, some of the magnificent things that are mentioned in the scriptures to indicate his glory and his excellence. But you remember we read 2 Corinthians, and in chapter 12 he said, I have learned that when I am weak, then am I strong? And in chapter 13 he said, Christ himself was crucified in weakness. And he picks, he's only picking up what he said already in 1 Corinthians. But Christ crucified is the weakness of God. Weakness. Oh, you say he said he was the power of God. Yes, he said he's the power of God. But he said, after he said all that, he says, the weakness of God is stronger than men. Jesus Christ had him crucified his foolishness, but the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Don't you see, instead of always hammering on the idea of omnipotence and almighty power and staggering magnificence, the Lord says, yes, you're going the same way that all the lot did. You're looking for the great thing, as you're misunderstanding greatness. Here's greatness. For the Son of God with all his glory and all that he knew to lay it aside, to stoop. And it's written of Christ that he was made a little lower than the angels. And yet the very same epistle that says that says that his fingers or his hands frame the heavens. Well, of course we know he must have been infinitely greater than the angels and yet he stooped to the position of a little lower. And then in chapter 1 it says he's received a more excellent name than they. Well, of course he had a more excellent name before, but he's received it because he's stooped, he's received it on our account as the mediator. So we've got this stress of the fact that when God's first great counter move of the rebellion that was brought in by Satan and caused the overthrow, instead of the magnificence, he put a man in the Garden of Eden. And David 
looking out into the heavens. And of course you can take a casual glance at the heavens and means nothing. You've only, only got to be a little bit acquainted with what it's all about to be staggered by. To go out tomorrow evening and the next evening and the next evening and there they'll be, just taking their course slowly, absolutely held in power. And if the astronomer is right when he speaks of light years, we can't question it. I don't know how they get about it, only vaguely. But what a universe this is. When you think of the Milky Way or some of these systems, infinitely greater than the one to which we belong. He looks out to those starry heavens and then he suddenly thinks about himself. What is man? When I consider thy heaven. That's one of the reasons why I think it would do everybody good if they could afford it to have a holiday in Switzerland. Not that you look at stars, but you look at something bigger than yourself. You suddenly come up against the young Frau with all its magnificence. That mountain there. And you think, hmm, I thought something of myself back home, but who, oh, why? You see? Well, that's only in front of a mute thing in nature. And so, when God made his counter move to Satan, it wasn't somebody as magnificent as Satan to set him off. Because they never forget that the scripture always gives Satan his due. He's a fallen being. But even the, uh, Michael the archangel, when he contended with Moses, he did, contended with the devil about the body of Moses, he didn't bring a raving accusation, not even the archangel. He said, the Lord rebuked thee. And it's also written in Zechariah, the Lord rebuked thee, O Satan. You see? And so is a man. Now would you look at the second verse of Psalm 8? We suddenly drop from glory above the heavens to babes and suckling. That's my story. That's it. Out to the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast ordained strength. And what was Adam? In the, in comparison with this wily foe, what was he but a babe? What was Eve? Was she a match for the subtlety of the serpent? Of course not. Even God himself, the creator, cannot give to you and to me a second-hand experience. That's a contradiction of terms. He couldn't give to Adam the experience that he would gain by hit and miss, trial and error. Couldn't be. So before ever Adam knew half the things that he should have known, he's trapped. And then, of course, you could imagine Satan feeling that's done it. You see? But we're going to discover that the moment man sinned, God's counter move was to lift up his pawn and say, before the foundation of the world, Christ was set apart to be a lamb without blemish and without spot. Satan, you didn't bank on redemption, did you? No. Well, that's where you're wrong. You see, that's anticipating another move. It, it's that that we've got to watch all the time. So we have this man and this woman in this garden. And they're trapped. We'll go into the story in Genesis 3 a little bit later. But for the moment, we're considering the way in which it goes through this. Now, when you notice the next thing, our version says in Psalm 8, Thou hast ordained strength. But when this passage is quoted in the Gospel according to Matthew, 
It says, Thou hast perfected praise. Now I've seen some extraordinary gymnastics on the part of commentators by saying that the word ordained can mean to appoint and then to appoint suggests ability. Uh, of course they work it round at last that you can get, see, but that's not possible. What I think we must recognise is this, that the Holy Spirit is the author of Psalm 8 and the author of the Gospel according to Matthew. And an author has the perfect right to express himself in two different ways if he wishes. I think that's far better. The Old Testament says, out of his weakness of babes and sucklings, he's ordained strength to issue. And in the New Testament he says, and that's perfect in praise. Because you see, it's a, it's a perfect praise to God. If he can use a babe or a suckling in opposition to this wily spiritual enemy. So let them be, shall we? Let's have both of them instead of trying to amalgamate them. Now what about this enemy? Thou hast ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. The enemy and the avenger. Let's come back for a moment to this man, Adam. I don't want to miss this point. We are distinctly told that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. doesn't say sinful flesh and blood, but flesh and blood, as it is, cannot inherit the kingdom. And then we have someone created by God, flesh and blood, who was already under that disability. Something would have to be done to him to make it possible. This is only emphasising the weakness that is to be observed in this man that God ordained and put there as uh, over against the work of faith. It was his first task. You do remember, don't you, that when he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Now that's our word fullness. That's our word fullness. It's translated fullness in the passage in the Old Testament. So here's God's fullness being the first move in the fullness. There's only a type in the shadow because Adam was a figure of him that was to come, Romans, the fifth chapter. The second man is the Lord from heaven. The first man was of the earth, earthy. And he's the last Adam. Oh, he's the true fullness, but here's the first move, the shadow of it was, as I've said earlier, these are all fittings until you get to the central one. This church to which you and I belong, the church of the one body, is now and will be the fullness of him that finish all in all. They're there right on the spot immediately and they don't know no repetition afterwards, no figure of something else to come, but it's the only calling that can, that can be said fits its place and is never repeated, but that we've got some distance to go before we get to the middle yet, haven't we? Well now, the next thing is this, to steal the enemy and the avenger. There is a system of teaching which says there is no person called Satan. Satan and the devil 
and uh, all such titles, are only symbolic references to evil. Well, I rather think that that's playing into the hands of the devil. Because if he can make you believe that he's not existent, well, you've, you've pretty well given him the keys of your castle, haven't you? And of course I did say to one who spoke to me at a meeting that there was no such person as a devil but only tempted by evil. Well, where did the evil come from? Oh, within. I said, I thought you'd say that. Why? I said, will you tell me who tempted Christ in the wilderness? If there was no outside tempter, who was it tempted him to make bread? Did he have evil within? Yes, he said. Yes. Of course he had to. I knew he did. That's their teaching. The moment you read the Bible of a personal devil, you've got to have evil within not only you and me, but the Son of God himself, otherwise he couldn't be tempted. But he was tempted externally. And so we get here. When you come to the New Testament, and the question was in the minds of the disciples, why the sowing of the seed and all this failure? You remember the parable. Then the next parable comes along and gives the answer. And Elimi has done this. That's the answer. If you haven't, if you're not able to say when you look at all the catastrophes, and all the baffling experiences that are written in the scriptures and which people know by their own lives and experiences, if you don't know there's an enemy at work, you will be baffled as to how are you going to explain it. But if there is a potent enemy, one that is not to be trifled with, if this earth is a very battleground of light and darkness, truth and the lie, Christ and Satan, or we can begin to understand in some of the perplexing things at least I've got to show a reason. Now the next thing is this, and I think you will um, be interested in this little bit, that thou mightest still the enemy. Now that word still is the Hebrew word Shabbat. S-H-A-B-A-T-H. Have you got it? It's the word Sabbath. Now, the moment you get that, you say to yourself, ah, there's a little light coming on, the emphasis upon the Sabbath. This word still is the very word that's used in Genesis 2, verses 2 and 3, and the Lord God rested on the Sabbath day. Rested from all his work. And we are assured that God needs no rest in the sense of being tired or weary. It was a symbolic rest, wasn't it? And you remember in Hebrews chapter 4, it says, There remaineth a Sabbath kismos. There remaineth a Sabbath keeping for the children of God. And some of us have probed the scriptures. We've been a bit diffident over it. But we do feel there is a good deal to be said for the thought that the millennial kingdom being a thousand years is the seventh day of God's working week. And we begin to realise that it was in the mind of God at the beginning. And so he planned 
the creative preparation of earth for man to occupy just six days. It's very unscientific to try to teach that God created heaven and earth and all that you can think of in six days. Doesn't say so. It says in the beginning he created the heavens and the earth. But the, the present earth and the heavens above it were a special work on the part of God getting it ready for man and the carrying on of the redemptive purpose. And that is to pass away. And then you remember you could go through these scriptures with this emphasis upon seven until at last you reach the, the thousand years. It won't do us any harm to be, to be reminded, especially as we have this recording for others who may not have had it so clearly in their mind. You get the seven days of Genesis, uh, the creation week. And then you remember that we have the um, period of time that elapses between Passover and Pentecost is seven weeks. That is the case with, with regard to our holidays too, because they coincide with Easter and with seven weeks. And then the festival year of Israel is seven months. Their year is the same length as ours, 365 days and a quarter and odd bits. But, so far as the typical festival year is concerned, it ignores five months and completes the whole festival year in seven months. There must be a reason for that, mustn't there? And then we have a sabbatic year. Not merely seven days, Sabbath, but the seventh year is a sabbatic year to be observed by Israel. And then we get the Jubilee. Seven times seven, forty-nine, and immediately the forty-nine years is complete, they sound the trumpet and the Jubilee is introduced. A wonderful picture of what God has in view in the purpose of the ages, when all inheritance shall go back to the original uh, legacy, when all debts are cancelled, when all Slaves are set free, so that there was a law in Israel for the sale of property, that as you got nearer and nearer to the Jubilee, so your property got less and less in value, because whoever bought it had got to give it up at the sound of the tr- Jubilee trumpet. Oh, what a wonderful picture, when that trumpet sounds in the glorious future, all our debts gone, all our forfeitures made up, all bondage gone. That's God's purpose. As I've been tempted sometimes being born in London within the sound of bow bells, I've been tempted to say, Jubilee. Which you mustn't put that on a record, but I suppose it's there. Jubilee. Then you see, not only do we have the seven times seven years, but now we're coming up to the seventy times seven of the great prophecy of Daniel. Within a period of 70 times 7, 70 weeks, God is going to finish transgression and make an end of sin and bring in, see, everlasting righteousness. And then we get the one day of the Lord, a thousand years. Well, that's just the climax, isn't it? And we know enough of uh, the chronology without being able to be sure of up to a year. We know enough of the chronology of the Old Testament because they're all linked up together there so wonderfully. But we are practically drawing near to the close of the sixth 
thousand years of history since Adam. Well, then the next thing is the millennium then. The next thing is the seventh, the rest. Well, that word is picked out by God to deal with that enemy. And when I come to the seven thousand years, what do I find? You read Revelation chapter 20 that he took that old serpent, which is the devil of Satan, and he was put into hold, into prison, for a thousand years. That killed the enemy, didn't it? That put the Sabbath onto him in the full sense of the meaning. And this particular word is translated to cease. It's a wonderful thing. Wherever God has a special word, you'll find that Satan has a try to see whether he can't use it too. So in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, when it speaks about the great anti-Christian power at the time of the end, he shall cause sacrifice and offering to cease. Same word as this word still. He says, the scripture says, I'm going to be Sabbath. Well, I'll try to put Sabbath onto that, see? Sort of uh, an objection to it manifesting itself, even though he knows he's beaten. So he's to still the enemy. Poor little Adam there in the garden. You were subjected to sin and death. You were expelled and you brought misery in your train. But you were a picture, after all said and done, of the way in which God is ultimately through a greater than Adam. You to steal that enemy and that avenger. And you may have to wait 7,000 years for it. But it's coming. It's coming surely. Don't you think it's worth then noticing these little incidental words? How many times we read, say, a psalm? I wonder how many times it's been sung by people in church. And I suppose, without being unkind, it's never flitted across their mind or memory half the things. Why it should link babes and sucklings with the glory in the heavens and why babes and sucklings should be associated with sitting an enemy. But you see, this is letting light in on the character of God's method. He uses the weak and the frail apparently to triumph over the mighty. Then we just go further down. When I consider, when I consider thy fingers, heavens, the work of thy fingers, well, that's you see, in a psalm which speaks about Adam, is speaking about Christ. The Hebrews 1 says, the heavens are the work of thy hands. And nobody's going to raise an objection and say, oh no, this says fingers. And the other one says hands. That's trivial, isn't it? So here we have Adam, in wonderful contrast with this one, whose fingers framed the heavens, and yet ultimately they're joined together. For one is called Adam the first, and one is called Adam the second. And one was the picture and type and pledge of the other. When I consider thy heavens and the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And of course there is a reaction to this on the part of some of God's people. They get as far as that, and then they say he's nothing to be accounted for. I think it was Spurgeon who travestied 
a prayer that he heard somebody. He not only spoke about thy dust in the presence of God, he spoke about himself, thy dust. But thy dust's dust. Well, that's, that's, getting, a, that's getting a bit into the ridiculous, isn't it? To be so abject in the presence of God that he not only spoke about himself as dust, but he spoke about his children as dust, 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 dust. But it's good to be humble. But it's good also to remember that God has said that when man was created, insignificant and weak though he may have been, he was crowned with glory and honour. Now that's as much gospel truth as John 3.16. It's just as much truth as saying all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We want a balance. We don't want to be lopsided. This was forfeited. This was ruined. But Adam becomes a, a, a subject of redemption. And all those in Adam who are involved in sin and death have a redeemer. And that redeemer their next of kin who stooped down to flesh and blood in order that he might deliver them. So it says, What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him? Now, if that's referring to the same person, as it looks as though it is, a man can be called the son of man. Not because of the son of anybody else, because that's one thing Adam wasn't. Adam wasn't the son of any man. But he was the son of man, in the sense that the son of man is the typical outstanding representative. And when Christ came, he's called the son of man. And literally speaking, he wasn't the son of man. Man had nothing to do with him. So there we have the Son of Man, the title of Christ, the Son of Man, the first man in the garden. For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. And the epistle to the Hebrews is more explicit in the margin. It's not merely made a little lower than the angels, but thou hast made him for a little, for a little, lower than the angels. Well, that is a suggestion that there was a destiny awaiting him. He was made for a little, but he was destined to be above. You see, this man, in spite of the fact that he's crowned with glory and honour, is the part of the animal kingdom. Nobody now is going to be very upset when you speak about a man as an animal because they watch television and they listen to the wireless so much that when the quiz is on, the first question is, is it animal, vegetable or mineral? Well, it's animal. Well, has it got four legs? No. Has it got two legs? Yes. Is it a man? Yes. That's an animal. A man belongs to the animal kingdom. There is no other kingdom higher in our creation. A spirit world is outside. So God chose a peculiar, wonderful animal. And you know I've been told by students of anatomy that a pig can be examined from an anatomical point of view, and is as near to the human body as any other animal you'll find. The disposition of its organs and so on. And we are constructed very much like an animal. We've got the backbone, the joints, and all the organs of the body, just the same. And then there's a difference. God said, let us make this man in our image, after our likeness after our image, in our life. 
That's never been said of any other. Not been said even of an angel. He is a distinctive thing. And we shall discover when we look at it that there was something else that was distinctive at the creation of Adam, but all in good time. So now we've got this complex person. He's lower than the angels. He's very much aligned with the animal world. If the temperature drops to anywhere around about 30, he's wishing the meeting to be over because he's getting so perishing cold. And all that. Because we're just animals. Like that. And yet, and yet, destined one day to bear the glory of the Lord himself and share possibly his throne. That's God's move at the beginning. That's the way in which he counter-moved this rebellion and attack. And you know, I have a feeling we may have to let our feelings be that when it says, when he and they bring it, he's only begotten into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And right back in the beginning, there's a possibility that that was the crooks of the rebellion. This mighty being that we'll have to consider presently when we come to it, who said, I will set my throne above the stars, I will be like the Most High, this anointed cherub that walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire, this one who is called a Messiah, in Ezekiel, the anointed, rebelled against the idea of worshipping that one who was already the image of the invisible God and in whose likeness Adam was created. So he came into the garden with one object to do as much damage as he could to that one. When we come to think of the enmity that's expressed, I've, I've mentioned this before, but it's a part of our story. This enmity that we find everywhere is accidental. The very first use of it in the scripture, God himself undertakes to say, I will put enmity. It's not an accidental thing we say, oh, what a pity. God says, I will put enmity between thy seed and her seed. He did it. It's here still. You can't shut your eyes to it. And then you come to that book of Job. The speculations as to who Job was. There are two or three that might be. But I remember the game. My Septuagint. And at the back of my Septuagint translation of the book of Job, there's an addition which is not found in the Hebrew. It gives his genealogy. It's uninspired, but your genealogy is true, even though that's not inspired. You've got certain parents, whether they were godly or ungodly, that doesn't make any difference. And so, in Job's own day, or within a reasonable time of testing, they put the names of people in that could be challenged. And as Job was a mighty prince in that land, he would have relatives and ancestors who were also concerned with dominion and power. So you couldn't go play about with a man's de uh, de genealogy like that. And it says his name was Jobab, who afterwards was called Job. Oh, you say, I see. His name was Jobab. Well, why did they change it? Well, why did God change Abraham's name and call him Abraham? Simply because he wanted to change the meaning. He said, Abraham, I'm not going to call you by your Chaldean name anymore. I'll call you a Hebrew name and I'll call you Abraham because you're the father of nations. 
Why did he change Sarah? He turned her into a princess. Why did he change Jacob to Israel? A prince with God. Well then why did he change Jobab into Job? Why? Why because the word Job is the word that you find in Genesis 3.15. It's the word enmity. The word Job is the word enmity. And then you've got the whole thing in a nutshell. You'd be blind if you didn't see after that that the book of Job is the picture of the enmity between the two things, the sons of God going into the presence of God and Satan among them, and then there doth Job serve God for naught, and all this. And then the plastering of that seed of God. And at long last he comes out, double. Even the number of his asses and camels are doubled. His family are repeated. And as I've said before, there wasn't a trace of Job's disease because the name of one of them, Karen Havoc, means a paint box. And that didn't mean to say she got a complexion over the counter either. There's the story. There's the enmity. And there's the overcoming at last. And look at feeble little Job. And yet he comes out triumphant. He's called not only upright, but he's called perfect. Because the word perfect is associated with a seed. As Noah was perfect. And even Jacob is said to be perfect. Although our version says he was a plain man. It's hidden it. So there we have it. Now let's finish this looking at the psalm. Now for there's made him a little lower than the angels and has crowned him with glory and honour. And then it turns, you remember, in Hebrews and says, but we see not yet all things under his feet. We see Jesus who was crowned with glory and honour for the suffering of death. That's what Adam couldn't do. But he was a figure up to a certain point. Now it says, Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. And this is where Paul comes in. Paul is the only man in the New Testament to put his finger on this verse. Thou hast put all things under his feet. Now this harvest goes on to tell you what they were. He harks back to the book of Genesis and he says all things that were put under the feet of Adam, a sheep, an oxen, beasts of the field, Town of the air, fish of the sea, and whatsoever passes through the paths of the sea. That's all. But it was a tremendous dominion, but there it was. But when Paul comes along, he, I want you to look at this now because we are going to finish with this. Ephesians. <laughs> chapter 3. Just a few verses in chapter 3. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, Ward, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. Stop. As I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed. When he wrote afore in a few words, now there are some say, ah, oh, that's an epistle that's lost. But can you believe God would inspire a man to tell you and me, 1900 years afterwards, that if only God could have protected that epistle, we'd have had some knowledge about it. Oh, we can't believe that. Now in this very epistle, he said something. 
He says, if you'll only see how far I've got with the mystery of Christ, you'll understand my claim to have the mystery added to it. So here it is, chapter 1. He was raised far above all principality, verse 21, and power, and might, and dominion, and every name that is named. Look how it's piling up. Principality. Not angels are mentioned here, friends. They're only messengers. This is princes. This is dominions. And every name that is named not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And have put all things under his feet. Now the psalmist said, all sheep had oxen. But Paul says, sheep and oxen? I'm telling you it's principalities and powers. I challenge you, he says, to find anybody in the whole range of scripture who's ever said that. And nobody has. He says, my knowledge of the mystery of Christ is greater than that which Isaiah or Daniel or Psalmist ever had. And if I, if I can prove that, then I ask you to believe that associated with it is the great mystery which has been entrusted to me as well. Now let's chase this, all things under his feet, in two other passages. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 24. Then cometh the end. Now this is a disputable point. It may be the last rank of the various ones of the race and the dead. But so far as my understanding is concerned, which is personal to myself, I can only commend it to you, is that the rest of the words which start when are in brackets, right the way down to the end of verse 28. And so I read first of all this, Then cometh the end, that God may be all in all. That's the end. Now he says, I'll go the steps that will be taken to reach it. And we go back on our story. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. When he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Paul says, Paul, I can't let that go. I've said all things under his feet. Oh, this is my special text. For he has put all things under his feet. But don't you know when he says that? All things are under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. Isn't that a marvellous thought? He says, this is such a universal dominion that I've got to draw your attention that the only exception is God himself. Well, that's an advance to sheep and oxen, isn't it? If you, were, if you had dominion over all the sheep and oxen in creation, that's nothing in comparison with principality and power. But what are this? He says, always oh, says, there may be names that I don't know anything of in the world to come. I do know this, that he has such a universal sway under his feet that God alone is accepted. Now, would you turn to Hebrews chapter 2 and read it all over again? Verse 6, But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the Son of Man, that thou visitest him. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honour. And did set him over the works of thy hand. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. Oh, he says, I can't let that go, can I? But in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. Now, isn't that the same mind at work that wrote 1 Corinthians 15? 
Isn't that one of those casual little proofs that you've got the same man who wrote Corinthians, who wrote Hebrews? That's far greater proof than a good many other things that are brought forward. That sort of way of gripping the thought and saying to see what's in it. Well, that's just a, an attempt this evening to look at that one psalm, Psalm 8, and give you a little idea as to the question, why was man put in the garden? Why did God choose such a person? And we go back on the story, that out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast ordained straight. He did not put a great, wonderful giant of a person who could stand up to the devil. No. He put one who was easily tempted and went over like that. Pray. But we reminded ourselves in Corinthians that the weakness of God is stronger than men. And that our Saviour is said to have been crucified in weakness. And the Apostle Paul said, when I am weak, then am I strong. Oh friends, if the weakness of God can encompass that, what would it be when he makes bare his arm? And when the words can be really said, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Oh, we're on the right side, friends. If God works like that, well, we take courage. He can use you. He can use me. Weak though we may be. And passed by some who in the estimate of the world are far greater. God has chosen the weak thing. The things which are not to compound the things which are that no flesh should glory in his presence. Well, we'll leave it there because uh, quite a number of our folks will be sorry that they haven't been here this evening owing to the inclemency of the weather and there are other aspects of the constitution of man and the place he occupies that we shall have to reserve for another bit. I hope that what you have seen has been sufficient to justify coming out in this weather and that you will have a happy and speedy journey.